Hi friends, it's Nate and Shelby back with the Woman series in what is the last episode of this series. Crazy, we're finally here, but and it's it's gonna be my favorite, I'm pretty much already sure. Yeah, yeah, and the, the response and the feedback we've gotten um, in lots of different places, but including the Facebook group that is for patrons of the show um, has been fantastic. There's lots of questions in there. Some people this week have been asking for more resources. So they loved the mm -hmm. Magnificat read from um, mm -hmm. the perspective of a woman and asking, are there more things like that? So definitely jump into the Facebook group, um, become a patron, jump into that group, and we're going to be sharing more things like that, more resources for you in there. But this episode, uh, how are we wrapping things up? Where are we going? Yeah. So if you've been tracking in this uh, series with us, you know that we've spent a lot of our time in the Old Testament. And um, and a lot of, I think when people listen to that um, topic, like we're talking about the treatment of women and um, the way that the Bible talks about women, um, a lot of people are going to kind of write off the this topic of the Old Testament because they say, well, Jesus is different. And like, well, once you get to the New Testament, you'll see that this uh, Saul moves forward and like, it's not that these problems go away when we look at Jesus. And so we're going to mostly dive into that claim today and look at some some of that's true and some of it's not. And as, as we've said this whole series long, um, there's not necessarily one clear picture of the treatment of women. Um, throughout the Bible, and that's the, that's also the same in the New Testament, and that's the same with Jesus. It, it's sort of that whole idea that there isn't uh, the biblical way to do this, or the biblical way to do this, or the Bible is clear about this, or the Bible is clear about that. It, and we say this on the show all the time, that the Bible is not a clear message pointing to one thing, you know, mm -hmm. not, to, not to call out the Bible Project here for their mission statement, but it's not this clear arrow that points to Jesus. It's not this clear arrow that points to the uh, biblical way to do uh, gender roles. It's not so, mm -hmm. I mean, I think, but it's used as that, right? Because um, it'd be really nice. It'd be really handy if we had something like that, whether you want to make it the Bible or the Constitution or whatever, mm -hmm. it'd be nice to have something like that. I think that's just something we have to say as humans. It would be nice to have a document that told us exactly how to be yeah. and what we're supposed to be doing, because we don't know what we're supposed to be doing a lot of times, but that's not what the Bible is. And I think a lot of us have discovered, because we were raised with the idea that this Bible is a clear like depiction of how to live, we've discovered that having that actually doesn't. Uh, fulfill the desire we would hope of like, all right, finally, something that just tells me what to do, because odds are there's going to be things in there that don't sit quite right or things that don't really make sense. And, you know, the, so that's, we've discovered um, that even as, as much as we might want the, the so-called maybe stability or predictability that would come from just being told what to do mm. by a document, it's not actually, it doesn't really work in, in real life. And there's, oh, because we change as human beings, when we grow and we hopefully get better as as a people, as as an, a world. Mm. So when you talk about Jesus and women, there's there's definitely uh, in the Christian world, kind of maybe the ex-evangelical, but not necessarily ex-Christian world, um, a big emphasis on how Jesus is actually um, very pro-woman, um, a feminist. There's the book by Sarah Bessie called Jesus Feminist. Um, and so there's... Um, a lot out there about how Jesus is the this perfect example of like finally someone promoting women and standing up for their equality, and uh, in there's there's a couple 
there's examples throughout the Gospels that could take it both ways. Um, and as said before, what we're going to come away with is that there's not necessarily a clear picture. But let's look at a couple of them. First of all, let's look at the story of the woman at the well. That was the first one that came to my mind. It's like, you think of Jesus with women, you think of the woman at the well, right? Exactly. So this is in John 4. And Jesus, it's, it's a long, long passage. It's actually, I think it's the longest dialogue of a woman with a man, potentially in the whole Bible. Um, and definitely the longest di- um, dialogue of Jesus with a woman. And so this is a Samaritan woman who, so this is a, a people group that is very much ostracized by the Jews. So normally, if, so between the Jewish and Samaritan dynamic and then the male-female dynamic, an interaction like this between Jesus and this woman would normally not happen. So that's usually the first thing we talk about is just how remarkable it is that Jesus even engages this woman in conversation. I've heard a lot of sermons about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, and it's true. Like that is, it is, this is a very powerful story to start off with both racially and regarding gender. Clearly the author of, of John, who's writing this story, does see Jesus as, um, as fairly forward and somewhat revolutionary, pushing back against the racial and the gender dynamics. So that, that is really cool to start off with. Um, then they start talking and let's, let's pull it up actually. John four, let's start with verse seven. Could you read from seven down to how long do you want to go? I mean, well, I'll just read for a little while here. Well, and then uh, <laughs> you stop me. All right. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews." Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Let's let's pause it right there. And before I go into it, I want to. I first, I just want to hear from you what what have you been taught about that story so far. Um, yeah, yeah. Most of it is about how Jesus was able to like, well, I mean, outside of the worship in spirit and in truth, which is like said before uh, a worship service or before we start singing or something like that. Um, but most of it is about how he 
Jesus was able to figure out that she uh, is not with her husband and she's got these other guys. And so it was very much like a, he called out her sin mm-hmm. um, kind of a thing. He saw right through her. Yeah, that's that's what I was always taught as well. And that's what I'd say most of us probably were taught. Um, and it wasn't until actually I was in university and someone was speaking um, in our, our chapel and referring to this book called um, In the Land of Blue Burkas and, uh, by Kate McCord. Um, she was a missionary in Afghanistan, which is um, the land of blue burqas. Women are usually culturally wearing these long blue burqas all the way to the ground. Um, and so it's, and I, I read the book, it's this memoir of her time there working mostly with women in a very um, conservative Muslim culture. And she tells this story to those women. And she she had the same impression we have of what the story means and kind of, you know, this uh, sexually loose woman who's going around and is too ashamed to even go get water at the normal time of day. And then, you know, Jesus meets her there. And um, But when she read it to the women, they took, uh, they had a very different impression. Um, they immediately identified with that woman and they said, in our culture, uh, a woman a woman doesn't have the the right or the ability to to choose what man she's going to go be with. She's given to her husband, and the fact that this woman was had had five husbands meant that she'd been essentially abandoned by five husbands who had all passed her on to someone else, mm. and she'd been just handed one by one. And the fact that the man she was with now was not her husband was because she was now so worthless that she wasn't even worth marrying. She was just living in someone's house who would provide her with shelter and food um, in exchange for whatever she was able to offer them. And so her her situation was not under her control, is how these women saw it, because of the, the way that they identified with her um, due to the, their own cultural situation. And so the fact that um, she's talking now to Jesus and and that, I mean, how weird is it? And I wonder how you were taught this, that, you know, they're talking, you know, Jesus says, you've had five husbands, a man you had now is not your husband. And she says, sir, I can see you're a prophet. And then starts asking about where to worship in the temple. I don't know about you, but I always read that. And my impression was that, like, she's just changing the subject because she's like, oh, no, Jesus figured out my sin and I don't want to talk about this anymore. Mm. But these women, like, it made perfect sense to them because they realized, like, if she was this... um degraded and this worthless that she would never have been able to go into the places of worship and she would have been i mean cast out and just ashamed to show her face and so her question to jesus is essentially like how can i come to god how can i worship god when i'm just so on the outside Mm -hmm. and that and then jesus answer to her is essentially you you don't you won't have to go to the temple forever um you soon the father is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And like how, how, what good news that was to her that like, I can, I can meet with God on my own. Wow. And he actually wants to meet with me. Wow. That's like a completely different story. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like getting choked up just because that's, that's so different. I feel like I've had this same experience, like on three episodes here that we've done where (laughs) like you say something, you share a story in a different way and 
it lifts up the woman in the story and provides this perspective on the situation or whatever it is. And I'm left uh, pretty emotional partially because I'm frustrated about like the way I don't think people were like intentionally teaching it um, to try to teaching it the way they knew. Yeah. They were taught. Yeah. But we end up missing the woman's voice, changing it so that she puts her in a position where she has less power and is the one who's wrong in the situation. The one who is uh, in sin. We're judging her. We were judging her by our own culture and our own standards and not even just looking at the reality that, you know, she, she wouldn't have been able to do what we judged her for doing. Yeah. Or even just the, the judging her by the way the words in English read, you know, like you're right when you say you have no husband, like even the, did you hear like the, the inflection that I put on that, you know, mm-hmm. you're right when you say mm-hmm. you have no husband. Fact is that you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. You know, what you've said is quite true. Like, it, whereas if that was just read in this different tone of like Jesus saying, like, you're right that you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. Yeah. Like even just that tone is so, it's a, that's compassion of like, what a, how, where, how has life treated her to the point where she's now not even worthy of having a husband? That's just so, it's such a different perspective. Mm. So this is a powerful story. And I mean, one of my favorites in the whole Bible. It is worth noting that this story only appears in John. Um, and as we've talked about in other episodes, um, and I th- talked a bit more on Utterly Heretical as well, the um, John being the fourth gospel was written much later than the other three and has a lot of content that's not found in the other three. There was a lot more time between when Jesus actually lived to when the gospel of John was written for some of these stories to to grow and expand and so, so not saying that this story didn't happen, but um, that we don't know that this is verbatim what Jesus said. Actually, we can be very confident that this is not verbatim what happened because neither the woman nor Jesus are here writing the story. Um, and those are the only two people present in the story. Just, you know, no matter what, this happened secondhand from somebody hearing about it. Maybe it was the woman just sharing her story, which it does. I mean, at the end of this story, it says she goes into Samaria and like, gathers all those people and is like, come, meet this man who told me everything I ever did. Um, so she d- clearly does see, um, she's presented as someone who's going and telling her story. But um, all that to say, being only in one gospel um, shows that it, it was this wasn't necessarily one of the most important stories about Jesus. It's a beautiful one, and I'm glad it's in John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't see this as uh, a significant enough story to put in their gospels. All that to say that, you know, why we could use this story to say that Jesus is, you know, incredibly um, progressive and forward-thinking and revolutionary. Um, the other authors didn't know about this story to the same level, so I don't. It wasn't necessarily the biggest focus of his ministry. There are other stories, though, in the other Gospels of him interacting with women, um, seeing them, healing them. Um, so those those are significant as well. But not not as many of them are as um, clearly boundary pushing as this one. Hmm. Another one that's often brought up, and that you know, I would say is probably one of the ones coming to your mind, is the woman caught in adultery, um, and how Jesus, you know, they're going to stone her, and they ask her or yeah. they ask Jesus what they should do, and 
And he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That's what it is in the NIV, at least. Um, and uh, again, beautiful story that we've, um, I mean, one of the most powerful of the Gospels, I'd say, as something that just against condemnation and something that equalizes all of us as human beings. Um, and then when she, when everyone has left, then he asks her, you know, where, where are those who have condemned you? And she says, you know, they're, they've gone. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Hmm. However, you'll notice that when you read it, um, most people's Bible translations, this is, it's going to have a, a parentheses around this whole story, or it might be in italics. Something will be around this story, which is John 8, 1 through 11. And there will be a footnote, or there should be, that talks about how this is likely a later addition to John. That, again, this is in the book of John. It doesn't occur in any of the other Gospels. And it also is not present in our earliest copies of John. So we can be fairly confident that this is a story that um, grew over time and was eventually written down and added into the Gospel of John, which... I mean, this is maybe a good time, since we've done these two stories back to back of talking about whether or not this really happened, to address the 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 idea of, you know, does that does that undermine the value of these stories if they maybe didn't happen? Hmm. Like, if they're does that mean that they're not true? And that's a really big topic and one that I love to talk about because it reveals a lot of our modern um, our modern ideas about truth versus fact and what makes something valuable. Um, so to keep it brief um, and to hopefully um, soothe some of the fears of some of the people maybe listening, I know that I would have at first been threatened by what I'm currently saying. But even a story like this, the woman caught in adultery, even if it didn't um, actually physically literally happen with Jesus and the Pharisees and this woman, the fact that it became a story that was attributed to Jesus still says something about who they perceived Jesus to be. Uh, in fact, it might even say um, more about Jesus because um, whether it was something similar to this that grew into this full story or or whether it was just a story that be- was told by his followers, whether or not it really happened, the fact that they thought of Jesus as someone who would do this, who would stand up for that woman who would um, not condemn her, that's still significant, whether it happened or not. And it's still significant as um, an example. I mean, if we collectively look at the story and say, this is something that's beautiful that we want to emulate, we still can use this as an example. Yeah. And that kind of comes back to just how we view the Bible again, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think you eventually, and probably a lot of listeners of this show are very comfortable being in that place of a lot of the things that we're reading in the Bible we're not reading the news, right? When we think about Genesis, we think about the creation stories, we think about the flood, we think about some of these things. Um, there's a lot of imagery going on. There's a lot of story being told and probably created to to uh, show something else, to show a, a different lesson they were trying to get across in the story, something like that. And again, does this diminish what the Bible is or do we just need to change our perspective, change our understanding change our lens as we look at this thing and accept it for what it is. And um, then we can appreciate this Bible for what it actually is and what it wants to be and what it, what it was trying to be all along. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I could not agree more. And I think that there's still so much value to to these texts. So still focusing on Jesus, um, both of these stories have um, demonstrated some of the, the beautiful elements of Jesus' interactions with women in that there is this perception among the gospel writers that Jesus saw women differently and treated women differently. And that's awesome. But it's not, there's not a complete picture here. And something that really bothered me as I was growing in my awareness of the treatment of women in Christianity and in the Bible and, and looking to Jesus as an example of how it should be done perfectly, because that's always been our expectation of Jesus is that he would do things perfectly. I then looked at his 12 disciples and I couldn't find an explanation for why he would have 12 male disciples and none be female. That gets brought up a lot. Like I've, I've heard that in so many discussions with people when it, when the topic of gender comes up um, and the topic of, um, you know, being a feminist or something like that, people go like, yeah, but what about Jesus? Like he had a chance to even just have one woman disciple and he didn't. What do you say to that? Yeah. I mean, I remember being in a meeting with a pastor um, and asking this question about um, why, like, why would Jesus have just all male disciples? Like, can you, can you look at me as, as a woman who wants to follow Jesus with everything that I am and, and tell me why Jesus didn't choose any women to be his 12? And um, the pastor told me that it was because Jesus was using the 12 to show how he was creating a new a new Israel, the new 12 tribes of Israel. And, and I was just kind of puzzled, like, how does that solve the problem? Why couldn't Jesus have created a new Israel using both men and women? Wouldn't that have been a better new Israel than mm. just 12? So I don't know, that was one of the responses. I, I just say that in case that's the response anyone else has gotten. And just to validate that, that did not satisfy me either. Mm. So, so I have dug into this a lot. And um, I will say, there's an incredible documentary out there. Um, it's short and sweet, and everybody should check it out. It's, it's called, I think, Jesus Female Disciples. You can actually just find it on YouTube. It's free um, by two scholars, Joan Taylor and Helen Bond, both scholars of the, the New Testament and Second Temple period, and um, specifically the topic of women. And they dig into this question of, did Jesus have female disciples? And they believe that there's evidence that he did. They're, they dig into a couple verses wow. um, that talk about how Jesus sent out his disciples um, in twos, in, in pairs. And um, they, the, the, the vocabulary that's used there is also used um, to talk about pairs of like a male and a female, like, like in the sense of like in Noah's Ark when, mm. when they have pairs of animals that are put on the ark. So they, they believe that Jesus um, sent them out, a man and a woman together. Wow. And part of, they believe that if Jesus was baptizing women, that he would have been um, also bringing women along to do that baptizing, like that it would be a woman baptizing another woman. Hmm. Uh, And then, of course, there's just the verses in the New Testament that talk about how women are the ones who supported Jesus' ministry. So, the the most well-known of those is in Luke 8, um, verses 1 to 3. It says, uh, Jesus was traveling around, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, 
Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And really the only, I mean, this is basically the only clue we get as to how Jesus was financially supported throughout the Gospels. And it's that these women are supporting him. I mean, they're the ones making it happen. They're the ones who are literally getting him the food he needs to survive and keep doing his ministry. Yeah. Um, and it says that the 12 are with him as well as these women. Like it's lists, the list. So it's from what we can tell, they're traveling all together. Like we get, we get this picture, which is um, largely due to the, the, the narratives and the stories and the, the paintings and the depictions that we've gotten ever since the New Testament was written. We see these pictures of Jesus with his 12. And that's kind of it. Like Jesus at the last supper with his 12 and Jesus, you know, on a, a mountain with his 12. But there's, um, not necessarily a lot of reason to think that Jesus was only traveling around with his 12. There were, he had his, according to the gospels, he had this select 12 that were kind of his top 12, but then there were other people who were traveling with him as well. So if, you know, we picture them all maybe spending the night um, on the Mount of Olives or something, that it was probably not just 13 people, Jesus and the 12 guys. There would have been also like probably a large group that was following him everywhere, including these women. The most prominent of which is Mary Magdalene, and we're going to dig into her more at the end, because there's some very significant depictions of her outside the New Testament that I think should inform the way we see her in the New Testament. Mm, But we're going to get to that after we finish talking about the New Testament, ending this discussion about Jesus by simply pointing out the fact that, yes, in the Gospels, Jesus does have these 12 male disciples, but there are scholars who, based on a lot of research, believe that there is probably more to that picture than what we're given. And um, so I think there's there's a couple things to balance here. One is that the Gospels are written by people who had a perception about what happened. And um, by the time these Gospels were written, the earliest of which is two decades after Jesus, if not further, um, there, the, the 12 had, had grown in prominence as this, you know, this collection, this group that were a pretty big deal led by Peter. So by the time that gospels were even starting to be written, the significance of the 12 may have grown mm-hmm. from what it was when Jesus was actually wandering around with his followers. So it's hard for us to know precisely what his, what it meant to be a disciple, what it meant to be one of the close people with Jesus. Um, so it's, it's hard to know for sure. I think there's room for us to to believe and hope that Jesus may have had female disciples that were treated more equally. Hmm. Okay, but what if what if he didn't? What if what we read is pretty straightforward? And so there feels like there's a little bit of like um, what we did in the gender series following the work of Westfall, mm-hmm. trying to kind of clean up Paul a bit, right? Yeah, some like optimism. Yeah. So let's say it's not. Let's say mm-hmm. the 12, even if they were, like you said, they were the they were the top of the top, right? Even that, even the, having the top be right. guys. all be men. Yeah. What do we do with that? Yeah, I think that is just as valid. And that's kind of the other side that we have to allow for here. And the one that's more difficult, I think for a lot of us who have grown up with this incredibly high view of Jesus, um, is that Jesus was also a man in a patriarchal culture. And there is 
the possibility that he didn't revolutionize the equality of men and women in the way that we would want him to were he here today. And I think that that can also be okay. But the implication of that says a lot about what we expect of Jesus. Yeah. But I think it has to. I mean, Jesus also didn't didn't push back on a lot of other cultural things. Jesus really doesn't make a statement about slavery. Very much could have. Well, and this is what I say a lot. And I, I remember saying it in the episode with Mario Livio, the astrophysicist who worked on the Hubble Space Telescope and like <laughs> there's coming a time these are the, you know you, you started that list and you're listing things Jesus didn't speak um, speak on the topic of he didn't speak on the topic of uh, our modern day LGBTQ mm-hmm. um, issues mm-hmm. and what we're what we're trying to process there yeah he didn't talk about that at all and every new scientific discovery uh, discovery of about people and anthropology and archaeology and as we keep going and eventually and this is where my discussion with Mario Livio went a little bit but eventually as we get to we're on some other planet and we're discovering life and we're discovering different things that have happened there and um there's gonna we we don't even know I can't even say what they're going to be what the topics are going to be what's going to come up because we don't know just like we didn't know some of the other things that we're talking about now um, we didn't know about that we're going to be able to edit people's genes, like not their oh, blue gosh. genes, but like we didn't know <laughs> about CRISPR-Cas9. We didn't know about some of these things. And there's more coming that we don't know about. And Jesus didn't speak about it. And so that, I think I think it's helpful. It's like, okay, why are we talking about that? Well, it's helpful looking back to say, okay, our, our understanding of what Jesus was doing and our perception of who this was and, and what we can get and glean from these teachings, that can be helpful to think about all the things Jesus didn't talk about and the things in the future we don't even know about yet that Jesus didn't talk about. It, it, it helps, I guess, set expectations for what to, um, yeah, what to expect of Jesus and, um, and not be too critical in certain areas. Um, but also not to hold this as like, this is, mm-hmm. this is all we need, you know, to know how to operate. Like, Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think as we finish our conversation about Jesus here, um, the main message that I would want to take away is that I think Jesus is a high point in the Bible for the treatment of women, but doesn't necessarily paint exactly how I believe women should be treated today. And I mean, this is, this is a big point of contention because, I mean, a lot of people who read the Bible more literally or more conservatively, theologically, who believe that, you know, whatever, what Jesus did is, like, that it's a different starting point, essentially. Mm. Like, if you, if we say that whatever Jesus said and did, that is perfection, that is the goal, then we are going to end up with a patriarchal culture that, you know, maybe doesn't view women as um, lowly property, but also doesn't view them as worthy of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if you change your perspective of both the Bible and your expectations of Jesus, then, then we're allowed to, to say that maybe things are, allowed to get better than they were. And we're actually going to 
end this episode kind of talking about that concept. But before we get there, we need to fill out the picture a little bit more by finishing out the New Testament with Paul. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, It works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So, okay, so Paul. So is Paul, (laughs) this is like one of the more complicated, I think, writers in the Bible on this topic of women. Mm -hmm. Like, did Paul have a high view of women, a low view of women? Did Paul really say that women can't be in, they can't be, they can't teach, at least they can't teach men? Um, Yeah, what do we do with this guy? (laughs) besides hope that we could take him out of the Bible. but Well, and, and it is, as always, more complicated and not as clear as, as it sounds. So let's dig into it. First of all, can you look up a couple verses for me? Sure. First, Romans 16, 1. Yeah, verses 1 and then verse 7. Okay. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in... I don't know how to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know what the word is. Okay, All right, let's, let's move on. Okay. Anyways, he, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in a city that I can't pronounce. And then verse 7, greet a name that I can't pronounce, oh, and Junia, okay. my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are astounding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Okay, so there's two verses out of Romans. Um, one of, I mean... It is, I'd say, Paul's most significant letter in the New Testament. And he's finishing off the, the book, the letter, with, uh, you know, greetings to various people. So in verse one, you have Phoebe, who he lists as a deacon in the church. So there's already like a level of, of leadership there. And then in verse seven, you have Junia, who is, he says, uh, an apostle. And that's a, that's a fairly significant term to use that's usually only used of um, the the twelve disciples and Paul and a, f- a few other people um, who have high level of authority and status in in the early church. So that's pretty significant to see Paul's attitude here, and that's kind of the point I want to start off with. Paul's attitude toward women um, in Romans and a lot of other at the ends of a lot of letters like Ephesians and Galatians. There's he's he's greeting these women as people who are serving equally in the church. And then let's most significantly, as far as I think the attitude of Paul, go to Galatians 3, 28. It says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'd say, I mean, maybe right there is the high point even. I'll, I'll qualify that beautiful verse with the, the fact that, you know, Paul may not have been talking about, I mean, he definitely wasn't saying that there's literally no such thing as male or female or Jew or Greek. Like what he was, his focus of the passage is that theologically we're all equal in Christ and um, mm-hmm. that, you know, we can be saved. And, but even that, that's just a, the fact that he would go to the point of writing those words is significant and beautiful. Mm-hmm. and feels contradictory to the other things that we know come out of some of these letters of Paul. That's what I was going to say. Like, I need to For pull For example, 1 right. Timothy. Could you look up 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15? A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So how does it feel reading that in comparison to the verse we just read? There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. It feels like a different person. Yeah, I think so. And there's a scholarly consensus that it actually is. And again... This is another one of those things that maybe sounds crazy um, and maybe sounds like, oh my gosh, you're about to undermine the whole Bible, but it actually would have been normal in the early church. And I'll let me explain. The first and second Timothy and Titus, those three letters, are often lumped together and called the pastorals. And they are they were written later, like some of the last texts to be written of the New Testament. Um, so they were written as kind of the second generation of Christians was coming up up and coming. And this is significant because when Paul when Paul the original apostle Paul was writing they really had this attitude that the kingdom of God is is here is now Jesus is coming back any day all of this like a lot of a lot of the technicalities of the world don't even matter anymore people were selling all their property women were Living, like women weren't getting married anymore because they they didn't need to because they believed that Jesus was going to return and bring this whole new heaven on earth any day. And as the years went by, they the church started to realize that like that wasn't exactly what was going to happen. The fall of Jerusalem was a huge, um, huge setback um, when they see that the temple destroyed and. And, and no angelic army coming to save them. And so also the Roman Empire, the, like Christianity is becoming much, starting to become much more persecuted among the Roman Empire. And so they start to change and adapt to, okay, I think we're going to be here longer than we thought. Like we are going to, mm. the church needs to become a long-term plan, essentially. So it's like the beginning of covid compared yeah. with like after a year after the COVID. two weeks to flatten to the curve <laughs> we realized that it's not gonna be that easy right so one of the main problems for this second wave of the church essentially is that a lot of people are talking badly about the christian movement because of these women who are um not adhering to social norms anymore they're not getting married they're they're leading a lot some of them are starting these other movements of Christianity that felt 
weird and kind of overly spiritual. Like a lot of people didn't feel comfortable about it and thought these women were being super mystical and almost like witchcrafty and they didn't, they didn't like it. And so as they're creating church round two, church long-term, one of the main things that they try to reel in is the women. Say, if we're going to be a respected group of people in the Roman Empire, then we need to, um, we need to essentially bring our women back into line and we need to have a social structure that makes sense in our culture. And that was still a patriarchal culture. First and second Timothy and Titus, um, other reasons why scholars are fairly confident that these letters were not written by Paul is just that when you read them, uh, you can tell in English, but even in the Greek, it's far more clear that they're just not written by the same person. Like you can tell if you get an email from your friend, whether it was actually written by your friend or written by someone else. Like this just is they're just written differently. Like people have done deep, deep research into literally the vocabulary that's used. Like there's almost zero overlap between the vocabulary of First, Second Timothy and Titus and the other letters of Paul, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. Um, Paul's generally focused in those original letters on theology and on like these big concepts of how the gospel and how you know Jesus as the Christ um, affects us as Christians and what that means for us internally in salvation. First, Second Timothy and Titus are much more focused on how the church is organized. How do we select deacons? How do we select mm-hmm. elders? Um, and it's just reflected by what they needed at that time. And then to get back finally to the the point that this wouldn't have been threatening to a New Testament audience is that this was a very common practice for people to write under the name of another um, authoritative figure. So when when a letter like Timothy is signed Paul at the beginning, uh, it's not someone trying to forge Paul. They weren't trying to deceive people into thinking that Paul wrote this letter. It was a very common practice to um, write under someone's name, essentially under their authority, under their influence. This happens in the Old Testament with Isaiah. Um, Isaiah, most scholars would divide it into three parts that they'd call first, second, and third Isaiah, and are pretty confident that the, the first one was written by the actual prophet Isaiah, or at least dictated by him. And the other two, which are written later, and we know that because they talk about things that happened later, like multiple decades later, are are written by people who are writing under the name of Isaiah, under the influence, the authority, like they're saying, I want to this to be, um, you know, in the spirit of Isaiah, essentially. Hmm. And so that's also what the author or authors of the pastorals, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, were likely doing, is writing something that they felt like Paul would have written and would have, you know, given a stamp of approval of, and that is in his spirit and under his authority, Um, And so that's why they're writing it under his name. Do we have anything like that in modern times? I'm trying to give a helpful um, example of something that Mm -hmm. we have like that. I thought of, you know, and I think we've mentioned in this series before, like a a, a play. Like there's so much Shakespeare being done today Mm. that is heavily adapted, you know, edited, redacted. They add things, they change things, but you can see the story still happening. It's in the spirit of Shakespeare. There's fan fiction we've talked about where you'll um, write or continue to write. Some would say the Disney additions to uh, the Star Wars universe. I know. I was thinking Star Wars. 
I mean, I was thinking Star Wars in the sense of if Paul is George Lucas, which is a great way to start this already, um, then, you know, in a sense, the the last three, um, the most recent three, uh, George Lucas didn't write. But if you were to ask someone who wrote Star Wars, they'd probably say George Lucas, just as a whole. Like, right. he is responsible for Star Wars. And, and even the last three are... They're very much written in trying to make it in line with the story that he'd already created. And so, yeah, maybe that's an okay example. Definitely different because we live in a culture with where attribution is um, essential and reporting who wrote what. Like, that just wasn't as big of a deal in the ancient world because you couldn't track that kind of thing. J.J. Abrams is not going to put George Lucas, written by George Lucas. No. And that's because, I mean, Star Wars is, is enough on its own. Like if, if uh, the authority of his movies was dependent on George Lucas, then, oh, here's a better example. Here's a much better example. is the Nancy Drew series. That there's mm-hmm. a ton of books that are not actually written by Carolyn Keene, who is the original author. But they, I mean, if you look at the cover, it'll still say by Carolyn Keene. And then somewhere on the inside side, it'll be like, who actually wrote it? But the, it's just so, Nancy Drew and Carolyn Keene are so tied that they just still put her as the author, even mm. though you know that she didn't write all of these hundreds of Nancy Drew books that are out there. Right. So I think that that helps us a bit with interpretation when we just separate the, the what I would say, original letters of Paul versus the pastorals. And a lot of, almost all of the kind of submission verses that we're familiar with are in those pastorals for 2 Timothy and Titus. One of the most significant passage passages that isn't in the pastorals that is... Um, a fairly controversial statement about women is in first Corinthians chapter 11, but a lot of scholars feel like that was actually taken from the pastorals and adapted into a first Corinthians later, because um, when they look at the context, they feel like it doesn't really fit. Um, And there's, there's a lot more out there that of research that can be looked up that I won't get into on here, but all that to say that, um, there are scholars who are looking into, you know, why is why is this showing up in this one text? And it could be that, you know, maybe it was in that original 1 Corinthians, and then that's where 1, 2 Timothy and Titus extrapolated from. Um, but overall, when we look at the actual Apostle Paul, um, we don't see the same emphasis on women's roles. Like, there's occasional comment here or there, but for the most part, we see him, you know, acknowledging the women who are in leadership and um, even making statements like that. There are no male nor female. It's when we move into these um, letters written under Paul's name, the pastorals, that we see um, a lot of the the verses that have been used to emphasize submission and keep women out of leadership. All right, so we've essentially made it through the New Testament um, with, you know, we haven't dug into some of those other letters. Um, there's little things in everything we could, we could look at, but in the interest of time, we've covered a, a broad perspective of Jesus and Paul, and then this kind of pseudo Paul at the end. But as I had promised, I want to dig into another text that's not in the New Testament that I think is incredibly significant to this topic of, of women and has some crazy implications for how we've maybe ended up where we are today versus where Jesus may have been going. Hmm. And that text is is about the character of Mary Magdalene. Let's just look at her really briefly. 
um, her role in the Gospels. So she's mentioned in all four Gospels. I believe the only woman who's who's mentioned in all four, except maybe you know the woman who anointed Jesus. Some people would say that that was Mary Magdalene, um, which is an interesting topic for another day. Um, she followed Jesus. From what we can tell, as we mentioned from that verse in Luke 8, she's one of the women who is going around with Jesus, um, potentially supporting him out of her own finances. Um, She's at the cross, uh, where the disciples are not, other than John. So while they've all fled, she's stayed at the cross. And most significantly, as all of us probably know, she's at the resurrection. And she's the primary witness, only witness, who then goes and tells the disciples that she's seen Jesus and is the first, the apostle to the apostles, as she's now called. In that description, when I bring up Mary Magdalene, what is something that you feel like you know about her that maybe I've left out? Like your impression of who Mary Magdalene is as what you'd learned about her? I mean, prostitute? Yeah, that's what I uh, thought you might be thinking, because that's what we've all been taught, this, that she was a prostitute, um, this sinful woman that Jesus kind of, you know, somehow transformed into this follower of his. But it turns out there's nothing in the New Testament that says that. Hmm. Um, let me emphasize again, there is nothing in the New Testament that says that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. The The way that we get there or we have gotten there, is that um, the verse that we actually just read in Luke 8 says, it says that Mary of Magdala was someone from whom seven demons had gone out. So that's a little weird, you know, we don't hear about people with seven demons very often. But then essentially, several hundred years later, there was a pope who basically preached a sermon in which he connected that passage with um, the sinful woman anointing Jesus and then labeled her as a prostitute, and it just stuck. Like, there's no actual evidence other than that that's how she became known. And then the depictions of her in the art became her as a prostitute. The stories that were told of her became of her as a prostitute. But, and it literally got to the point where, I mean, that is how we all learned of her. What's crazy is, I mean, this was formally, like, there was a formal apology put out by the Catholic Church just a couple decades ago in 1969. They put out an actual statement saying, we were wrong to have labeled Mary Magdalene as a prostitute. There is no evidence that she was such. She is the apostle to the apostles. Mm. Wow. And when, I mean, when I first heard that, I was so angry, not not necessarily at the Catholic Church, but at the fact that, you know, we can put out this statement now, we can put out this apology now to say, oh, she's actually not a prostitute, which she actually is this forerunning figure in the gospel. But you can't fix right. the damage of what was done for hundreds of years. Yeah. Well, how different would it be if for 2,000 years she had not been seen as this sexually uh, risky person who was there for kind of um, underemphasized, not mm. lifted up as an example yeah. of who we should be, when in reality, she's one of the most significant figures in the New Testament. And it and it never, like, it says that. it's It portrays her that way. The New Testament does. We it, it's, it's our cultural understanding of her that has sidelined her, not actually what's in the text, which is crazy to me. Mm. Wow. So in 2016, they actually started, um, the Catholic Church 
created a festival for Mary Magdalene. Um, and uh, I've started celebrating it every year and encourage the rest of you to as well. I believe it's in July. Hmm. But now that we've overviewed um, Mary Magdalene in the New Testament, let's get into this document that I mentioned. And that it's called the Gospel of Mary. It's a text that was found, discovered in the late 1800s. So just about 150 years ago is when we, we found a copy of it. Uh, then it wasn't translated or published for a while after that because of World War One and World War Two. So we didn't really know about it until the mid-1900s, um, less than 100 years ago. Has anyone put this into any Bible or is this in anyone's collection of sacred texts at this point? Uh, well, it was found in what's called the Berlin Gnostic Codex. So it was found with a couple other um, ancient Christian documents that were uh, from the Gnostic movement. So a different movement of Christianity that was pretty heavily condemned by um, the early church. And I think for probably a lot of good reasons, it didn't line up theologically with, um, like the Gnostics believed in the secret knowledge you had to have to, to gain salvation. But people who look at um, the Gospel of Mary actually think that it's it's not really as Gnostic as the other texts. But what's more significant is that um, two other fragments of this text were also found in the last hundred years in other locations. So we now have fragments of this text from three different places, which wow. is pretty rare to find, and which tells us that it wasn't just kind of this one-off random text, like people were actually reading this all over the Christian world. And scholars have dated it to probably having been written in the early second century, um, particularly Karen King. She has a whole book out on, on this text, and she dates it to the early second century, which is still when texts of the New Testament were being written. I mean, this is incredibly early. Like, wow. John was probably written around the same time as this Gospel of Mary. So, of course, what's in it is the main question. Um, yeah. And I'm going to you can you can find it online. I just have it up on a, a web page here. Um, it's it's a story. It's it's crazy. It's like reading a deleted scene of characters you already know because it starts off. Um, Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's basically giving these final instructions to his disciples before his ascension, and then he uh, lifts off, raises up into the sky. He ascends, lifts off, and there. <laughs> <laughs> I've never. Okay, <laughs> it's like a rocket launch. Well, yeah. That's how I always pictured it. I mean, not quite that fast, but yeah, a slow but anyway, <laughs> then the disciples are all left standing there going, what do we do now? And Mary is there as one of the disciples, Mary Magdalene. And they turn to her and they say, can you tell us everything that Jesus told you? And she says, yes, of course. And so then she starts into this long, like multiple chapters of talking about of telling what Jesus had related to her that apparently the disciples had not heard. And um, most of that, sadly, is lost. And the parchment has disintegrated, and we don't have the center of the book, which is her, the teachings that she's sharing. Oh, that'd be so but cool what if we, like, do... we discovered that someday, like some other yeah, cave that would... tunnel. I would like just that. automatically become a full-time Gospel of Mary Magdalene scholar if that's what happened, so wow. who knows. Um, but then when, how it ends... So in chapter nine is the last chapter. I'm actually going to read it because it's just so interesting. So this is the last, it's very, very short. Um, but when Mary had said this, so all these, the teachings she's relayed, 
She fell silent, since it was to this point that the Savior had spoken with her. But Andrew answered and said to the brethren, Say what you wish to say about what she has said. I at least do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. Peter answered and spoke concerning these same things. He questioned them about the Savior. Did he really speak privately with a woman and not openly to us? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? Then Mary wept and said to Peter, My brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I have thought this up myself in my heart, or that I am lying about the Savior? Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you have always been hot-tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the Savior has made her worthy, who are you to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect human, and separate as he commanded us and preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or other law beyond what the Savior said. And when they heard this, they began to go forth to proclaim and to preach. Wow. That's the end. What are your initial thoughts hearing that interesting story? I think the first thing is like, it's hard to take off that Mm. cap from like the past of like, this feels like one of the, um, someone, you know, got alone in the woods and came out with the divine tablets from Mm -hmm. heaven and it's different than all the other stuff and you need to listen to me kind of a thing. Um, so there's some of that going on. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that mm-hmm. it's so old, as you've said, like it's potentially around the time of John. Like, let's say we had this book and John came around later, right? Like John came around mm-hmm. and we discovered that, you know, and only had three manuscripts of that or something um, and fragments of it. And we discovered that a hundred years ago. Like, I think we'd feel the same way about that. So I, yeah, I don't know what to say about that except for some of those, Oh yeah, you know, red flags kind of go off a little bit or something. But. Mm-hmm. Which is good and and right. But it's uh, interesting that, um, I mean, of course, we don't know what the teachings are in the middle of this book, like you said. Um, we don't know mm-hmm. how different they are. We don't know how, um, are they really far out there? Would we read and be like, oh, yeah, that feels in keeping with what we would expect. Um, it sounds like it made the some of the disciples... Um, be like hey this is different you know but it didn't make them be like so let's not go preach the gospel they were still like let's go you know preach the gospel and say the things that jesus said to do so i don't know what what was your first thought when you first read it first heard about this yeah well first i think it's worth addressing what you're saying and because i'm sure that most people listening to this are like should i even be reading this like isn't this this heretical or dangerous. I don't know if most people listening to this show are thinking that, but yeah, maybe. Okay. Well, that's definitely (laughs) how I was starting off. And even now, you know, I read it and I, I mean, maybe this is more what we're thinking. It's just, you know, what credibility does this really have? Like, how do we know that somebody didn't just sit down and write this story for the fun of it? Um, And I will hundred percent acknowledge that that could be like, it it could, I guess the, the significance of the story is not whether or not this actually happened. Because we, we can't know for sure whether this this moment of Mary sharing her her impression of Jesus and then the disciples essentially saying that they don't believe her. We don't know if that really happened. What I think is significant is that this story was written at all. Like there were enough people out there who did, like uh, at least people enough to write it and then to read it afterwards, who did feel like something like this could have happened something 
where Mary came into conflict with Peter. Like the fact that this was even a concept worth writing down in someone's mind gives me pause. And, it, and that's what it did for me when I first read it. I essentially paused and went, huh, this seems weird. But I mean, also, Peter definitely is hot tempered. And <laughs> so that part felt right. And, and then I thought, okay, well, it, does that line up with anything else in the New Testament? And so I went back to look at the New Testament. And as we mentioned, I mean, Mary's a very prominent figure in the Gospels. One of, I mean, she is the number one witness. She is the number one woman who's following Jesus. She's in every Gospel. And then she is never mentioned again. She's never mentioned in Acts. She's never mentioned in the letters of Paul or any of the other letters, never mentioned in... Where did she go? So I'm not saying that this happened, but I am saying that it made me stop and think what happened to Mary Magdalene. And it doesn't seem too far-fetched to think that if she had a different take on who Jesus was or what the gospel was and what they were out to do, and if that came in conflict with Peter particularly or the disciples as authorities, she would probably be the one on the outs. I mean, obviously, this is not the only possible thing that could have happened. She could have died of a sickness a year after Jesus ascended, and that's why we never heard of her again. But, but a text like this was also written of people... Uh, within the century of Jesus having lived, writing a story about Mary's gospel being in conflict with Peter's and then her being pushed out. And I, I just think that's really interesting. I don't know. I'm not, I don't, I don't know anything for sure. All I know is what I do know is that this text exists. Somebody wrote it down and it was spread and Mary Magdalene disappeared from our gospels. Well, our, our version of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think for me mostly, it's made me, and this, um, as, as we transition into the conclusion of both this episode and this series, the story of Mary Magdalene and just this thought experiment of, you know, where did she go and what was her take on Jesus, it's just made me realize, as we've talked about in, when we talk about the voice of women, that we don't know. Like, we never got to hear from her. You, like, we don't, why, why don't we have a gospel of mm. Mary? I mean, uh, we kind of do here. But, but, like, if she really, if she was the one who saw Jesus, like, why don't we have something from her in the New Testament? Why don't, why isn't she um, written about, you know, the sermons she was preaching in the book of Acts? Like, why, where is her voice? Like, that's a voice I would sure like to have heard more Wow. Um, yeah. So where do we go from here? Like, I think what we've said in this series is that in the Bible, the biblical texts, these writers, the, what we have here, it's it's sort of a mixed bag. Um, mm -hmm. It's in a lot of ways not great for women. We and even just like what you just said of the some of that's because we just don't have their voices, um, mm -hmm. and some of it is because of horrific things we see in these texts, as we talked about last episode, towards women, about women. Um, God not defending women. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think our series could leave some people feeling like we've kind of smashed the Bible into a bunch of pieces. And in these last couple minutes here, I hope we could, I hope to put it 
a bit, a bit back together to show that there's a trajectory um, that I think is worth noting. Um, and I don't mean trajectory in the sense of, see, look, it was all going somewhere to begin with. So what do you mean by that? So if we go back to the Old Testament, some, I mean, let's even the, new, the Ten Commandments, that's pretty far back in Exodus. And the, one of those commandments about do not covet says, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. I mean, it literally lists the house before the wife as objects that you should not covet. We're starting pretty low right. back in the, the beginning. total property. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about that in our other episodes. We move up even just, you know, a few hundred years to uh, a rewrite of the of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. And they it's the same commandment, but it says, do not covet your neighbor's wife before listing the house. So, I mean, there's a somebody, some scribe somewhere made that change swapped the woman to be first. Interesting change. So what we, okay, there's a little step up. And then throughout the Old Testament, it gets a bit better as time goes by. We get to the second temple period, which is kind of this literature in the three to 400 years before Jesus. Um, That's, I mean, Esther's written not, I mean, around that time or a little before. And Judith, who we've talked about, Susanna, who we've talked about, these big stories about women coming out in the second temple period. So we're seeing... Um, a different attitude starting to happen. Then we get to Jesus. And as we talked about, there's kind of this high point, both with Jesus and then even these um, early letters of Paul, where women are are interacted with, are seen, are engaged with, are given voices, are given leadership, and are taking it. And so this whole trajectory just keeps going up. And then, as I mentioned, there's kind of this regression in the, in the second wave of the early church, where they start to I mean, Jesus is gone, a lot of the original apostles are gone, and they start to clamp down and reorganize themselves according to normal patriarchal norms. Um, So, I mean, I'd say this trajectory kind of goes up, 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 and then a little bit down in the New Testament regarding the the, um, treatment of women. And I think the difference here in two ways of viewing the Bible and women is whether we are required to stay at the place where the Bible, where the canon closed, like where where that if you picture that trajectory line ending in the New Testament, ending at Revelation, is that what we're trying to match? Are we trying to match where the Bible ended and the picture that we were given right there, or are we meant to continue the trajectory upward? Like if it was going upward and reaches this high point. Can we keep going? Yeah, I think what you're describing right there is the fundamental difference between conservative and progressive Christians. Exactly. I'm not talking like politically, but just sometimes it bleeds out into politics, sure. But mm-hmm. um, but the way we read the Bible. Right. Conservative theology, conservative Christian um, thought is usually we need to hold on to this picture we have. We need to try to figure out exactly what the Bible was telling us to do and to be. Um and get back to that. Um, and then progressive Christianity is, is much more comfortable taking on new topics and saying, the Bible doesn't speak to this, this, let's use wisdom to try to figure out where to go and where to and what to do. And we have probably most of the listeners of the show are somewhere in the progressive Christian or not Christian anymore. So um, make space for all of those people listening to this show. I do want to come back though to what you were saying about this trajectory, because I see that. I see like, okay, things are getting a little bit better as we go. 
in <laughs> along this uh, path of the Bible um, and the biblical texts. You know, I say this a lot that Christianity is like culture, but 10 or 20 years or 50 years sometimes or 100 years sometimes behind. But they always go the way of culture. As much as um, Christians don't want to say that and don't want to believe that, if you look at it, Christianity or the church follows culture, but it's just behind a bit. And of course, that's a, a very general, like it's some Christians are are different. I mean, there's not, we can't necessarily speak for all Christians at once, but in general, especially in the US, we have seen that over the last, I mean, 400 years that even when it comes to something like slavery and desegregation, that some Christians were at the forefront, but the majority of Christians, like the, the last people to desegregate were often the conservative Christians. Mm-hmm. I guess I bring that up to say, we talk about this trajectory we see in the Bible. I guess I just want to say, it might not have been that the biblical texts or the uh, Israelites or whatever, they they may not have been the ones that were leading the way on this and saying, look, now we're going to reorganize this list and put women ahead of the house. Um, in the property list, it may just have been that that mm. culture and was going mm-hmm. that going that direction, and that they were just making the shift to match yeah. where their culture was at. Right, right, and so it could be. It doesn't really matter for this conversation, I guess, to say this is the trajectory we have in the Bible. Um, it's the trajectory we have in culture too. We're, we don't live in a patriarchy anymore. Um, so what does that mean? You know, if we picture this like an arrow, right? And then there's this like dotted line of where the canon closes of the Bible. And we're now living in this other period beyond the dotted line. The arrow keeps going on. Does the arrow remain completely flat? Or does it move up and get better? Do things get better? What we would call better, right? Mm-hmm. It's just two different um, philosophies, I guess, yeah. two different ways of viewing the Bible and viewing what this is, as we talk about all the time on this show. Yeah. What, what would you say when you're speaking to trajectory? Where can we go from here? Do we need to ditch the Bible on this topic? I think that, um, interestingly enough, we haven't really talked about the the concept of feminism in this series much and and. I won't really, other than to say that I think um, being a feminist, um, which can mean a lot of things, but that is a term that we now have that Christians should, we should all be feminists. Not because Jesus was necessarily a feminist or the biblical authors were feminists, but because I think as a society, as a world, as humans, we believe that like we've come to believe collectively that women are worth more than they've been treated as. So we should be feminists because all humans should be feminists. And I think that if we go to the base of it, we, we all, most of us agree on that. I mean, aside from some, you know, extreme cultures here and there. Um, But we all believe that, that all humans should be treated equal. And, the if the Bible and if our interpretation of the Bible is going to keep that from happening, is going to cause us to maintain inequality, then either we're reading it wrong or 
we're trying to use it to be an authority that it doesn't need to be. Mm. And to your question about should we ditch the Bible, and more specifically, you said, should we, should we ditch it on this topic? Um, because, of course, you know, I believe the Bible is valuable as wisdom literature and always will be just as a cultural documentation of humans throughout history. But should we, should we be using it as an authority on how women are treated and as a way to teach us? Um, probably not. We should use it as a, a way of looking at how women have been treated historically and a way of understanding how we got to where we are and how, I mean, I mean, well, here we are in 2022, the way women are treated now and the fact that we're even having to have this conversation is because of these texts and because we've treated them as authoritative. So we can't just throw them away and not never look at them again because we'll lose, we'll, we won't know how we got here. So we do have to know what, what they say right now. Maybe it'll be different for our kids and for their kids as we hopefully get a healthier understanding um, of what the Bible needs to use for and what it doesn't. But no, I... I don't think that the Bible is good for women, ultimately. I think what is good for women is all of us working together to try to do better. And whether you identify as a Christian or not, we all have a role to play in this. Um, I, I want to share this quote by Sarah Bessie from her book, Jesus Feminist. Um, she says, Quote, one needn't identify as a feminist to participate in the redemptive movement of God for women in the world. The gospel is more than enough. Of course it is. But as long as I know how important maternal health is to Haiti's future, and as long as I know that women are being abused and raped, as long as I know girls are being denied life itself through selective abortion, abandonment, and abuse, as long as brave little girls in Afghanistan are attacked with acid for the crime of going to school— and until being a Christian is synonymous with doing something about these things, you can also call me a feminist. I think what she's saying here is that if being a Christian doesn't automatically mean standing up for women, then we're doing something wrong. And if being a Christian doesn't automatically mean being a feminist, then being a Christian isn't enough. I mean, all of us as human beings, Christian or not Christian, we should be standing up for women, for anyone who is marginalized, for all uh, minorities, for, for everyone. And we've seen that, sadly, the Christian traditions have often not, not only been not at the forefront, but actually been some of the most oppressive places for women. Yeah. And, and we said at the beginning of this series, we're going to look at the Bible, really, we're, we're going right. to put the Bible on trial <laughs> through this topic of women. That was going to be the lens that we mm -hmm. were going to look at things through. Exactly. And we've come back over and over again to the fact that the way we are using this text is not necessarily the way it was meant to be used and has caused incredible damage by being used that way. Um, in this case, because it's in a, a patriarchal culture is where it was written, and we don't have to maintain that. But when we talk about other issues, and, and we'll get into these in the future, um, but that the, these same principles will apply, that just because the Bible says something doesn't necessarily mean it should be that way. Just because First Timothy says women should be silent doesn't mean they should be. And that is a huge shift, an incredibly different way of 
reading this text to not be looking at it to say, tell us how to live, but to be looking at it to say, this is what they said and, and evaluating it from our own intuition and our own communities. And this is why a lot of people do ditch the Bible and leave Christianity altogether because they go, they weren't ever given that um, different way of thinking about it. Like, right. It's like, this is what the Bible is. Do you want to come under it or not? And it's like, no, I'm not going to, because I think that just simply the way culture is on a number of topics, including the topic of women, is better than the way the Bible is. <laughs> and mm. the, so they're like, so I'm done with that. Not because they want to, and like a lot of people think, and that are in Christianity, they want to go off and live a sinful life, or they just want to, you know, um, believe whatever they want to believe. It's not, it's often not even that. It's that they want to be better than what the Bible is. <laughs> they want to be right. better than that. And, uh, but if you're presented with this, that like, that's not, that's not really the choice you have to make. It's, uh, you can take this or leave this because it's a, is an ancient text and we're not trying to say, let's do exactly what the Bible says. Then it leaves this possibility of, and that's why, you know, people push me all the time. Like, are you a Christian? Are you not a guy on, you know, on, uh, even this last week, I've had people ask me that. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't know, like, I, yeah, there's a lot of Christians that would say I'm not. Um, and uh, because if that's your definition, like coming under everything that the Bible says and that being the best for the world, I don't think that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's other ways to, to look at this. And it's just like a lot of things, it's more complex. But I want to remove that kind of reduction of you know, you have to leave if you can't just come under whatever the Bible says. Um, you have to get away from this and think it's bad um, if you just can't come up with, come under what the Bible says. So, all right. So we've come to the other side of this series about women in the Bible. And these are things that we're going to be touching on a lot more in the future, even outside of this series as we go other places. But we'd still love to hear how this hits you, how you feel about a lot of this um, other things that it's made you think about. And we do a lot of this in the private Facebook group that we have for patrons. So you can become a patron for $5 a month. You can do this all at almostheretical.com and then jump into this group. It's so fun. I've really enjoyed just hearing the questions and the thoughts that you all are sharing. And then just the feedback from other people sharing on those thoughts. Like I'm not even involved in some of this. It's just watching mm -hmm. listeners um, engage with each other about these topics and about other topics. And it does inform what we do on this show. So I'd love to see you in there. So thank you for being on this journey with us. And I'm really excited about where we're going from here. We got some fun episodes and series coming up. We'll see you next time. <laughs>